What's going on everybody? Jason Frosto for TennisUnleashed.net and welcome to this episode of The Breaking Point where we cover the Cincinnati Masters and do a full recap of the event. All right, so in the first ever episode of The Breaking Point, we covered a lot of upsets in the Toronto Masters Series event a week ago. This week, we're going to do something similar where I recap a couple of different upsets that happened and break those things down stat by stat. So the first match that I want to break down is Max Purcell versus Casper Ruud, right? We've got Casper Ruud at number five in the world and Max Purcell at number 70 in the world, but rising up the ranks pretty quick and looking pretty good. And a couple really interesting things about Purcell, right? Very strong server, very good serve. Forehand and backhand are about equally strong, slightly stronger on the forehand, but not enough where it's noticeable. So let's jump into the first stat with Rude and Purcell and break this one down. The first thing that we see is the match stats for first serve percentage. Purcell, very low at 46% first serves in, but winning 74% of his first serve points. Rude much better, 71% first serves in, and winning 78% of his first serve points. If we look at second serve points one, though, we see Purcell winning 63% on second serves and Rude at just 46% when he didn't get the first serve in. And then as we look at the first serve returns made in play, right, we can see Purcell 76% in, but Rude only getting 64% of returns in when Purcell hit that big first serve in the box. And we also see that Rude struggled to get second serves in play. So just 66% of second serve returns he put back in the court against that strong Purcell serve. And then a lot of times what we see with players that have a much stronger forehand than backhand, right, is we tend to see the miles per hour be much higher on that side when somebody has a weaker backhand. And we see that with Casper here. We can see 75 miles an hour average on the forehand side, right? and just 61 miles an hour on the backhand. Purcell actually has a higher backhand MPH on average than Rude does, but he sliced 25% of his backhands versus Casper slicing just 10%. Rude could definitely be considerably stronger on that backhand side. The next thing we'll look at real quick here, guys, is total winners, right? Purcell at 38 with 37 unforced errors and Rude at 28 winners with 24 unforced errors. Now to Casper's credit, even though that backhand to me is considerably weaker, he had seven winners on his backhand side with nine forehand winners. So pretty good balance overall. Purcell, much stronger on the forehand in terms of winners, 17 on the forehand side and nine on the backhand side. They both split the ace category here at 12 apiece, so the serves were relatively even, but Purcell, we will see in a little bit, has a little bit stronger score in quality of shot on his serve. We notice, right, Casper was dominant from the baseline. Look at the number of points Casper won at the baseline versus Purcell, right, 50 to 27. And that's part of the reason why Purcell was coming into the net, right, 18 out of 30 at the net. He was making an effort to come in to break Casper's rhythm and to try to not get stuck at the baseline with him. If you look at the match insights here just a little bit also, we can see steal percentages for both players, but also attacking, right? So when we're in aggressive mode and we're attacking Purcell 27% of the time, he's considered to be attacking, and Rude just at 23% of the time for the match. If we look at the steal data, right, Casper much higher, 37% on steals. We kind of expect that very good grinder, very good player who can also be aggressive, but Purcell at 24% on steals for the match. So Casper clearly winning that matchup and that stat. 
And then one of my favorite stats, right, is shot quality from the ATP. They provide these stats in most match situations. So we can see the serve shot quality for both players, 7.9, dead tie for this match. The big difference, right, return a serve. So Rude being a little weaker on the return a serve, not handling that Purcell serve very well. Purcell at a 7 on the return and Rude at just a 5, a 2-point gap, which is a significant and large difference. If we look at the forehand ground stroke, shockingly, Rude almost two full points in his direction because Purcell's forehand is good, but 7.1 to Casper versus 5.2 for Purcell. And then the backhand side, Rude 7.4 to 6.2 for Purcell. So considerably stronger action on the backhand side, which in this match, I really didn't expect that to be the case. But overall, what really won this match for Purcell was his ability to come in break Rude's rhythm right, and then avoid some of those baseline exchanges by mixing in some serve and volley and keeping Rude's rhythm short and trying to keep him off balance by coming in. The second upset in the books, right? Hercotch versus Sitsipas. This was an early round match. This was a third round matchup. And Stefanos owned the head-to-head -head versus Hercotch coming into this match 7-2. to two. But again, Hercotch has a type of game, in my opinion, where Huge serve, very solid backhand, almost a backhand as a weapon, barely misses balls there. And then on top of that, her catch has a fairly solid forehand. It is technically limited a little bit, but overall, it's a very solid stroke. And Sitsipas has a weaker backhand and has a very weak backhand slice. So if there's a lot of backhand to backhand exchanges, I would fully expect her catch to come out in those situations. Sitsipas known a little bit more, right, for the thumper forehand. So let's take a look at some of the stats now and see what happened in this match. The first big noticeable stat, right, Sitsipas is supposed to have a bigger forehand than Hercotch. But if we look at these numbers, it's 14 winners for Sitsipas, 22 winners for Hercotch, and then 14 unforced errors for Sitsipas and 20 unforced errors for Hercotch. But if we look at the forehand winner numbers in particular, we see seven, right, for Sitsipas and 11 for Hercotch. So Hercotch actually had more winners on his forehand side in this match than Sitsipas did. And then Hercotch also getting some additional help, right, from aces. So 11 aces for Hercotch with that huge serve versus seven from Steph. Steph serves well, but Hercotch has an elite level serve. It's an excellent serve that gets him a lot of free points and he gathers up a lot of aces. And we kind of see the proof of that with these numbers here, right? Hercotch with 26 serves in that were not returned by Sitsipas, and Sitsipas had 18 serves to Hercotch that went unreturned in the match. So Hercotch, right, very strong on the serve. We just talked about that a little bit with the unreturned serves being at 26, but let's look at the first serve percentages here. So Sitsipas, 57% first serves in, winning 78% of those points, and second serves, he won 55% of those points. For Hercotch, 77% first serves in, winning a whopping 85% of those first serves. And then second serves as well, very strong, winning 65% of his second serve points. So when Hercotch was getting first serves in, he was very, very dominant. Again, eight and a half points out of 10, he's winning, making that first serve against Sitsipas. A lot of those probably directed at the backhand side. And we could see, right, when Hercotch was making that first serve and Steph was only getting 61% of those back in play for Hercotch, a little bit higher against Steph, serves 67% back in play. And then if we look at the ground stroke average speed, right, Sitsipas, 71% on the forehand side and a massive drop off on the backhand side at just 55 miles an hour, which is one of the lower numbers that I've seen looking at these stats. For Hercotch, forehand 67 miles an hour, 
and his backhand at 59 miles an hour on average. And Tsitsipas in this match hitting 16% of balls as a slice. So that is something that can drop that average MPH down on your backhand side. You know, Steph really needs to get better technically on his one-handed Thompson backhand, but also really on his slice. His slice doesn't really knife it like somebody like Dimitrov can or hit that thing and really come underneath it and make it slide through the court. It's sort of this stiff, rigid shot. He doesn't take the racket back far enough on that side. And technically, that's probably the biggest issue with it. And if we just dive a little bit deeper here into the actual insights, right, we see Hercotch 29% attacking, Sitsipas at 24% on the attack. And then if we look at the defensive numbers, right, the steals, Hercotch playing better defense than Steph, 42% steals in this match with Steph at 35. So Hercotch is a bigger, taller player getting more free points on his first serve, right? But he's also using better defense in this match, particularly to get points against Steph and a break serve. So even though Steph owned the head-to-head 7-2 coming into this, he's sort of been on this little bit of a downward trend. His ranking has slipped a little bit. I think confidence is a bit of an issue right now, and he really needs to address his topspin backhand and his slice backhand if he wants to continue to come back up in the rankings instead of dropping backwards. All right, and then the last stat we'll queue up for this match, right? Shot quality, first serve shot quality. Hercotch 8.8 on the first serve. Steph at eight, which is also a very strong number. The only number I've seen higher than this recently was Milos Ronic last week in Toronto. I believe he queued up a 9.2 against Francis Tiafo. So Hercotch not far behind that in terms of serve quality in this match. And then if we look at the return of serve, right? Hercotch 5.7, a little bit low. And Tsitsipas only at 4.5. So he really wasn't doing well against that strong Hercotch serve. If you look at the ground game, right, this is kind of interesting. Hercotch 6 on the forehand, Steph 6.8. So the ground game favored Steph off the forehand side. And then also on the backhand side, even though Sitsipas a little bit weaker than there, and I'd say he's weaker than Hercotch, 6.7 quality of shot on his backhand versus 6 for Hercotch. So Steph won the entire ground battle and ground game, but Hercotch was so strong on his first serve. And then even as the returner, he was stronger there in those two categories really outweighed anything Sitsipas could do. And then the next big upset on deck, right? Emil Rusevori versus Andre Rublev. Now, Rublev's an interesting case. He won a clay court tournament just a few weeks back. I think it was in July, right? Coming off a really good win there. Then comes into the hard courts and struggles a little bit. Loses to Mackenzie McDonald last week. McDonald played very well, but Rublev got played off the ground. McDonald was stronger, particularly in the backhand side than Rublev was and kind of won the battle there and played better defense. This time going against another strong opponent, Rusevori. The tour is getting so deep that anybody ranked, you know, beyond 25, 35, 45, 55, 65, even 75, these are all very strong players that can beat you on a given day, especially if things are not fully clicking for you. So in this match, we see a couple interesting stats right away. Rusevori, more winners than Rublev, right? 33 to 28. Even on the forehand side, 19 apiece. But on the backhand side, Rusevori at eight backhand winners and Rublev at just one. And we've talked about the difference between Rublev's forehand speed and his backhand speed. I mentioned that last week in our Toronto wrap-up. He's similar to some other players where they have such a strong forehand that the backhand can still be a good shot, but it lags so far behind and doesn't tend to produce a lot of damage or hit a lot of winners. Rusevori a little more level and even on those shots, so he has a little bit higher percentage of winners on his backhand side. And if we look at the unforced errors, kind of unreal off the charts, Rusevori at 71 total, and then Rublev at 64. 
Sirs and Aces, right? Six for Rusevori and eight for Rublev, so pretty much a draw. But if we go down from there, right, and look at some different stats, net points, one, Rusevori, 11 for 13, Rublev, 0 for 1. Andre doesn't journey into the net very often, right? That's something that I can see him do, route out the game a little bit more, get a little more comfortable at the net, especially in these situations where Rusevori is pretty strong, not weak on the forehand or backhand, pretty even. And then it's sort of this game of, you know, cat and mouse of what are you going to do back and forth to try to win points against someone that you can't just simply overpower. And for the second week in a row, right, we see some interesting first serve numbers when we look at this. So you got Rusevori, 63% first serves in, winning just 62% of those. He won 52% on second serves. And then we've got Rublev, again, pretty low. Last week against McDonald, he was under 50% first serves in. This week, 51% first serves in, winning 71%, but on second serves, winning just 44% of the exchanges. So Rusevori really hopped on his second serve and took it for a ride. Then if we look at some different numbers from there, we can see a few different things that are very interesting, right? The average miles per hour on the forehand versus backhand. So Rusevori, 77 miles an hour average on his forehand compared to Rublev, 74. But this is where we get the difference. It's the backhand, right? Rusevori averaged 73, so just four miles an hour under the forehand and Rublev down to 67, right? So a little bit bigger gap. It's not a bad number, but Rusevori a little stronger on the backhand than Rublev is in terms of generating pace. And that difference can make Rusevori very, very comfortable exchanging backhand to backhand with Rublev knowing he hits it a little bit bigger and can do a little more damage consistently with the shot. And then when we look at the insights, we see some other interesting numbers, right? Rusevori 18% of the time attacking, Rublev 17%. So this is very close, just plus one to Rusevori. And then we look at the steals, right? Andre, I kind of criticized last week for not playing the best defense. So he proved me wrong this week. 31% on the steals, which is pretty good. That's a pretty decent number. And Rusevori at just 29% on the steals, right? So Rublev a lot lower last week against McDonald in his ability to steal points, right? So that's basically when your opponent gets you on defense and you're behind in the point, if you're able to turn things around. Rublev, in my mind, not an incredible defender, but he proved me wrong in this match by being better coming from behind and stealing points that he really had no business getting, right? And Rusevori was the guy here that didn't defend as well as Rublev did. All right, so let's talk shot quality with Rublev versus Rusevori, right? We see Rublev 7.1 on the serve versus 7 for Rusevori. So Andre won the serve battle. But then we go to return a serve and we see Rublev weak here again like he was against McDonald. So 6.3 on the return of serve versus Rusevori 7.2. Rusevori was considerably stronger on the return of serve. Then we look at the ground game, right? 7.6 on the forehand for Rublev, very strong versus Rusevori 7.3. And then the backhand side, Rublev wins this 7 to 6.8. So even though Rublev hit the ball consistently slower than Rusevori off the ground, he still had better quality on his forehand and backhand side and he won the ground battle, right? So it's a very interesting thing to see Rublev ahead in three out of the four categories in terms of shot quality, but still lose the match. And a lot of that, again, has to do with that giant gap he has on the return of serve. All right, guys, so moving on to the next big upset, right? This was Alexander Zverev versus Daniil Medvedev in round three. You may not consider Zverev over Medvedev to be a huge upset because pre-injury, Zverev, right, was a top five, top three player 
on his way up, was looking great against Nadal at the French Open. Then he rolls that ankle and breaks the uh, the ankle, I believe. And then he's out for quite a while. And now he's sort of on the mend and on the comeback, right? And he hasn't quite gotten back up to his old ranking, but he's starting to have better results recently. So interesting matchup. I love this matchup in particular because it's two big guys that sort of play a little bit more defensively than you would imagine that they should. So it's kind of an interesting thing to look at. And if we look at the first serve percentages here, Zverev big time, 69% first serves in, but only winning 67% of those. We know Medvedev stands way far back in the court, right? And that can present a lot of challenges for people if they don't serve in volley and take a little bit of his time away. But again, Zverev, very high first serve percentage, but only winning 67% of those against Medvedev's return. Look at Medvedev, 53% first serves in, but winning a whopping 83% of those. And then second serves one, Zverev, 58%, and Medvedev only at 48%. So Zverev doing a really good job of jumping on that Medvedev second serve. If we look at the average forehand and backhand speed, we see a pretty significant advantage here for Zverev, right? Forehand, 72 miles an hour, just a tiny advantage. Backhand, 68 miles an hour, so a five mile an hour gap between him and Daniil. And Daniil, 71 miles an hour right on the forehand side and just 63 on the backhand side. Hits the backhand a lot flatter, we know that, not a lot of RPMs, but Daniil does a really good job with his backhand, not on the pace side, 63 is pretty low, but he directs it really well, gets a lot of length and creates a lot of different angles off of his backhand. So that's really his strength is controlling the length and the direction of the backhand versus sheer power on that side. If we just look at total winners, right? Zverev way up on Medvedev here. 36 total winners versus Daniil's 13. Unforced errors for Zverev, 49-25 for Medvedev, right? So he pretty much doubled him there. And if we look at the winner distribution, we've got 19 for Zverev on the forehand, which is a little surprising, and then 13 on the backhand side. Zverev not quite as strong on the forehand as a lot of players on tour, right? The technique isn't quite 100% sound. And then if we look at Medvedev, seven winners on the forehand and just one on the backhand. So pretty much nothing happened in the backhand in terms of sheer winners. But again, we know he does a lot of damage by controlling length and direction and angle on that backhand versus just sheer power. And Zverev with some interesting tactics, right? In this match, taking a little bit of the Alcaraz page out of that book of tactics against Medvedev. Look at the baseline points. One, Zverev just won 36 points at the baseline versus Medvedev's 57. So that's plus 21 to Daniil. But then we look at the net points run, right? Taking again a page out of the Alcaraz book, 27 out of 39 at the net for Zverev and Medvedev winning just 14 there. So that difference is plus 13 to Zverev coming into the net and winning points. Then if we look at the next chunk of data, right? We're looking at the insights. We see the attacking for Zverev. 29% versus 19% for Daniil, so plus 10 to Zverev. And then also just looking at the steal category, right, the defense, Zverev very good as a defender for a big guy, 32% on steals, and Daniil, what we would expect from his great defense, 41% on steals, which is a very, very high number. The only numbers I've really seen higher than that, right, Alcaraz, I think, and Djokovic at 42%. So very good defense from Daniil, and that's what we expect. And then we just look at shot quality, right? So Zverev, 8 on the serve. Medvedev, 7.3 on his serve. On the return of serve, 6.7 for Zverev. 6.7 for Medvedev, so a draw on the return. Forehand, 7.6 to Daniil versus 7 for Zverev, which I was pretty surprised by, especially just based on the winner numbers. And then 6.8 for backhands for Medvedev. 
and 6.8 for Zverev. So a draw on the backhand side. So this is a very evenly played match considering the return of serve was a draw and the backhand was a draw. What really ended up winning this match for Zverev, right? A little more even distribution for forehands and backhands in terms of damage and winners. And then also his ability to take advantage of Medvedev's deep court position by coming in and sneaking in and cutting off and hitting some volley winners. All right, and then kind of the last upset special of today, right, is going to be Adrian Manorino, who's been on the up and up lately, career high ranking, almost on the verge of that at this point. He's doing a great job at the age of 35, versus Felix Auger-Aliassime, who was the discussion point in our Toronto coverage a little bit last week. He's been on the slide all of 2023. We made a video again on his backhand in December of 2022. And after he made that video, it seemed like everybody in the world that he played essentially started picking on his backhand and his team wasn't able to take care of the technique flaw in that for the 2023 season. So hopefully it's something that they can address when this 2023 season comes to a close before 2024 starts. So let's look at the numbers for this match. And the first thing that's really interesting about this, right, a very low number of winners hit this match. So Manorino hit 13 winners in the match total and Felix with just six, which is incredible. They only hit six winners, right? The distribution on that is very interesting because this is something you see very often, but Manorino, eight winners on the backhand versus just three on his forehand, more than double off the backhand side versus the forehand side. And then for Felix, three on the forehand and just two on the backhand. Unforced errors, Manorino at 24, and Felix with a whopping 43 unforced errors sort of unheard of 14 of those coming off the backhand and 20 coming on the forehand side felix also had some serious serve issues in this match serving nine double faults i do think besides his backhand being a weakness that his serve is also weakness i'm not just basing this on double faults numbers but we'll get into some numbers in a minute that kind of prove that theory but his team needs to restructure not just his backhand, but also his serve. And this is an interesting category too, right? We're looking at first serve percentages. Manorino only making 42% of first serves in this match and winning 73% of those. But also for Manorino, only getting in 42% of his first serves, but winning 67% then of the second serve points. It's kind of incredible he's doing that. Maybe it's the lefty advantage. Maybe Felix doesn't like playing against the lefties. I haven't looked into the research on that very much. But Felix here, 51% first serves in, winning 77% of the points. But if Felix had to hit a second serve, he was only winning 33% of the points against Manorino. That's the lowest that I've seen from anyone in these match analysis in recent memory. Another interesting stat from this is when Manorino made a first serve, Felix only got 64% of those returns back in play. If it was a second serve in, Felix only got 67% of those balls back in play. He needs to be better on the return side of just simply getting balls back in the court, especially when Manorino's missing a ton of first serves and giving you a lot of looks at second serves. And then we see the average forehand and backhand speeds here, right? For Manorino, it's going to be 70 on the forehand and 68 miles an hour on the backhand, which is pretty high. And then for Felix, 76 miles an hour on the forehand side and only 63 on the backhand. So again, I've said this before, but when a guy has a really strong forehand and a technically weak backhand, the gap in miles per hour or kilometers an hour will be really, really big. And that should signal to almost any opponent, if the forehand and backhand are relatively even or close in speed, that that person greatly favors their forehand. And there's probably a technical issue within their backhand 
that they need to address. Same thing with Rude, same thing with Felix. Very common that you see this big disparaging number. Just take a close look at the insights, guys. We can see the attacking right was actually even at 19% apiece. 62% of the time they were in neutral rallies or neutral balls. And then if you look at the steals, Manorino only 25% on the steals. I don't consider him to be an amazing defender. And Felix at 33% on steals. And he can be a very good defender. So the steals went to Felix and also the attacking was a draw at 19% each. And this is where we're going to circle back to Felix's serve again a little bit in terms of shot quality. So we'll bring that graphic up real quick. 6.4 for Felix on shot quality of his serve versus 7 for Manorino. Return a serve, Felix at just a 5, which is super low, right? That number's insanely low. And Manorino at a 7. If we look at the forehand war, right? Felix 7.7 .7 versus 7 from Manorino, which is what I would expect. And then on the backhand side, once again, Felix at just a 6 in this match for the backhand quality versus Manorino 7.5. And the tour average, guys, is 7. So Felix needs to address, in my opinion... His first serve, the technique of it, take a closer look at that, see what's going on. Address the backhand, which I made a video, you know, almost a year ago now. Address that this offseason as soon as you can. And then also that return of serve obviously has to get a little bit better. And he's going to have a heck of a slide this fall because he won a couple of events, I believe, last year. Got deep in events, big events, last fall in the indoor season. So maybe he can pick things up for himself there. But he's got a lot of points to defend this fall. All right, guys. So the match that we've all been waiting for, right? The finals, Djokovic versus Alcaraz. This is round four of this rivalry at this point. Alcaraz winning the most recent match at Wimbledon. Djokovic winning the previous match before that at Roland Garros. And it's two to one all-time head-to-head Alcaraz over Djokovic. And at this point, I'm thinking in my mind as this match starts, I'm like, Alcaraz could definitely beat Djokovic on this surface, right? So kind of do a rough summary of this match i really went in deep in a different video so i'm going to leave that link down below for you to click on that but it's a much longer set by set summary this one i'm just going to go over the general numbers for the match and give you a briefer synopsis of it but if we look at the overall stats for this match right 42 winners for alcaraz 19 winners for djokovic 50 unforced errors for Alcaraz and 46 unforced for djokovic tons of forehand winners for alcaraz 22 here nine backhand winners, and then 11 big aces. He has a big serve. Ace Djokovic a bunch of times in this match. Djokovic forehand winners, 10, backhand seven, and then service aces, two, right? So Alcaraz has a pretty significant advantage over Djokovic on first serves, and he's also more explosive in general versus Djokovic on his forehand side, too, and his ability to do things kind of on the run or kind of create things out of nowhere. As this match went on, Djokovic's serve picked up, and what he did was had a lot of really well-placed serves that Alcaraz didn't return well. Alcaraz also had a pretty big lull in the second set where he didn't return serves well and had a massive drop-off compared to the first set and gave Djokovic a lot of free and easy points. So if you look at unreturned serves, Djokovic hit 42 serves that just didn't come back, where Alcaraz hit just 31 serves that didn't come back in this match. Look at the baseline points one right. Alcaraz clearly dominated this category, 78 points won from the baseline to Djokovic's 65. Djokovic switched up his tactics in this match quite a bit and decided, hey, I'm getting beat from the baseline every single set. So at this point, I'm going to start serving volleying on some big points and important points, and that helped turn things around for Novak. He won 20 points at the net versus Alcaraz's 13, and a key part of him coming back to win this match 
was his ability to serve and volley and come in. Then if we look at first serve percentages for this match, right, Alcaraz, 64% first serves in, winning 72% of those. And for Djokovic, 57% first serves in, winning 67% of those. Where Alcaraz started to struggle was really the second serves. He's only winning 48% of second serves, and Djokovic won 64% of his second serve points. And those numbers were greatly different in the first set and altered as it got later, and Djokovic really turned things around for himself by the third set. And then another interesting number, right? Average MPH on forehands and backhands. So we can see here, Alcaraz 69 miles an hour average on the forehand side and 67 on the backhand side, so almost even. And then Djokovic at 75 miles an hour on the forehand side, and that got gradually faster to the third set and just 68 miles an hour on the backhand side, right? So about a seven mile an hour gap. But you also want to consider the fact that when you look at these numbers, Alcaraz is slicing 19% of his shots, where Djokovic just sliced only 9% of his shots, right? So slicing obviously is going to take a little bit of pace off the ball. We're not going to have as much MPH on average on our shots. And that's due to Alcaraz hitting a lot of slices in defense on the run but also some of the drop shots that he's hit. Some other kind of key points from this match and takeaways, Alcaraz used the kick serve really, really effectively. On some of the biggest points in this match, especially on the ad side, he dropped the kick in a little bit short, get it up over Djokovic's shoulders, and force Djokovic to hit some type of weak return, and then Alcaraz would pounce on the next ball. It's kind of a thing of beauty, and Djokovic really couldn't counter it very well. He finally moved in really, really far inside the baseline towards the third set, and took away one or two of them, but he still really struggled against Alcaraz's kick on this court. This court was bouncing really, really high, but the balls were moving pretty quickly through the courts. Kind of a, a weird court in a way, not in a bad way, but just sort of a quicker court that had super high bounces. So it opened up things like super heavy topspin, and it opened up things for players like kick serves. So if you use those tools well, you do very, very well on this court. This is also sort of a battle of hitting really high and heavy after a while because both players, again, realize they could take advantage of the court bounce and hit high heavy balls over each other's shoulders to try to do damage. So that was another really interesting thing. On top of that, the defense displayed by Alcaraz in these situations and in this match was just sort of on another planet. The defense was off the charts. Djokovic's defense is good, but I feel personally Djokovic has kind of lost a step just a little bit, and that's normal at the age of 36. But Alcaraz looked lightning fast out there and did some insane things on the defensive side. Where I really want to credit Novak is he was at the mercy of Alcaraz. Alcaraz won the forehand and backhand battle in both of the first two sets in this match. He beat him off the court as far as ground stroke battles. It was all basically Alcaraz owning the shot quality metrics through the first two sets. And Djokovic was smart enough to start serving volleying, mix up the pace, mix up the heights, to just try to throw Alcaraz off of his rhythm. Djokovic also did a tremendous job of recovering from heat stroke in this match and coming back from that. He looked like he wanted to pass out in the first set or at the end of the first set. He was really struggling. Once the shade kind of covered the court, it gave him sort of a second life and a second chance. And then he was able to crawl his way back into the second set after being down an early break. So this was the best non-Grand Slam tennis match that I've ever seen. And even Grand Slam matches, this one definitely like a top five. The quality was off the charts. I believe it was the longest match in Cincinnati history, or at least in the finals history. Just sort of an unbelievable match and an unbelievable opportunity to watch two guys that are just competing at an insane level of technique, movement, 
court position, shot selection, strategy, mental game, just completely off the charts. Never quite seen anything like it. So it was awesome to watch the entire thing. If you enjoy this content and want to see more episodes just like this of The Breaking Point, drop comments, leave likes, make sure you subscribe. I'm Jason Frosto for TennisUnleashed.net. I'll see you next time.